to Matthew chapter 17. I was re-listening to the message last week and I promised that we would look at Mark chapter 9 this week. Uh, that was wrong of me. But Mark chapter 9 contains the same account that we're going to read in Matthew chapter 17. Children, you stay here just as I read this, and then after I read this, uh, you'll be dismissed with Mrs. Baker. Where is she? Is she here? I think I saw her come in. Oh, there she is in the back. Matthew chapter 17. Will you stand in honor of God's word if you can as I read this uh, portion of God's word? Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to him, to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is God's word. You may be seated. Children, you're dismissed at this time with this Mrs. Baker. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Precious Heavenly Father, Dick read about it in Deuteronomy 18 that you would send a better prophet and that we should listen to him. And here we read the story of Jesus Christ, who the Father commands his disciples to listen to him. Jesus is that better prophet priest and king, Lord, and we have come here this morning to worship him, to inform our minds and hearts about the glories of God and the glories of his son, Jesus Christ. And through the process of transformation that your Holy Spirit does in our hearts and minds, through the preaching of your word, Lord, make us into his image. Lord, remove any distractions that we might have had come, coming here this morning. Some of our hearts are very heavy with the issues of life, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you will comfort those with your word this morning. You challenge those who are perhaps been lazy this week in regard to their relationship with you. You encourage others, Lord, 
and that you'll use your word as only your spirit can do in our lives uh, to uh, prepare us for every good work that you have prepared for us beforehand. Uh, this we pray in your precious son's name. Amen. So Matthew continues his account in chapter 17. He says, after six days. After six days after what? Well, we have to go back to chapter 16. What's the context? Jesus has been having a conversation with his disciples near Caesarea Philippi. It's a Gentile region. He's up there with the crowds, with his disciples. And remember, Jesus asked his disciples a question, who do the crowds say that I am? And then Peter, by the spirit of the living God, revealed that revealed it to him, says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. <coughs> Excuse me. So Peter's God-inspired assertion that Jesus is the Christ, God's Messiah. Jesus then makes a proclamation to the disciples about his building of his church and the disciples' role in that church. Uh, Jesus then goes on and he begins telling his disciples, teaching the disciples, showing the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, he must suffer, he must die, and he will rise again the, the third day. After that, this is all six days after all this has taken place. After that, Jesus re, uh, Peter rebukes Jesus and says, no way, that's not going to happen. You're not going to die. You're not going to suffer. And Jesus rebukes Peter and says, get be, thee behind me, Peter, Satan. You're not thinking about the things of God. You're thinking about the things of man. <clears throat> and then Jesus continues his conversation with the disciples and those following him. And he explains clearly to them from that point forward that he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer. He must die. The Bible doesn't tell us what the group, what the disciples, what the followers were doing during those six days after their encounter up there at Caesarea Philippi. But since we know Matthew tells us that he began to show him about his suffering, death, and resurrection, we can imagine that he spent those six days teaching them about his suffering, death, and resurrection. Um, and then the text tells us, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Only three of that entire crowd that was following them, perhaps 70, at least 12 we know for sure, were directed by the Lord Jesus Christ himself to go up to a high mountain. They are, in fact, following Jesus. Hadn't Jesus just said, if you want to come after me, take up your cross and follow me. And so that's what they're doing. They're following Jesus, not to Jerusalem yet, they will, but they are following up to the top of a high mountain. He's been teaching to follow, and that means that those that stayed down at the bottom of the mountain were also following Jesus. They were following his instructions to say, here, well, I take these three up to a mountain. Luke chapter 9 also gives us an account of this very same situation. It tells that these three men went up with Jesus to pray. So that's what Jesus is doing. He's going up on the top of a high mountain to pray with these three disciples. Jesus has already left the group several times in Matthew to pray, pray by himself. He usually does it in the evening, but this time he's taking three of his closest disciples up to the top of the mountain with him to pray. Um, Luke also tells us that, believe it or not, as Jesus was praying, what do you think the disciples were doing? Huh? Sleeping! <laughs> Far for the course. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? So they're, they're dead tired, perhaps. Jesus took them up in the evening. Jesus is praying. They're sleeping. 
And Matthew tells us, behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. As Jesus is praying and the disciples are sleeping, two other men appear at the top of the mountain. We don't know which mountain. It's not important. Moses and Elijah show up. Does that remind you of anything that Moses at the top of a mountain, Elijah at the top of the mountain with God? Does anybody remember anything in the Old Testament about mountaintop experiences of both Moses and Elijah? Of course. Remember, Moses saw the glory of God as he received the law from Yahweh on the top of the mountain. Elijah, up there, confronting the, on a mountain, Mount Carmel, he's confronting the prophets of Baal. He sees the glory of the Lord in the fire that consumes the, the sacrifice that he is offering to Yahweh. So both of these men, Moses and Elijah, both familiar with mountaintop experiences with Yahweh, with God, the triune God, they represent, in fact, two Moses uh, to Peter, James, and John, and us as we read it today, they ref reflect to us all the Old Testament law. Oftentimes in the New Testament, uh, the Old Testament is referred to as Moses and the prophets. So these two men are up there because they represent the Old Testament. Um, these claims that Jesus has made to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, he must suffer, and he must die, aren't given in a vacuum. Moses and Elijah are there to verify the claims that Jesus said he must suffer, he must die, must go to Jerusalem, and must raise, rise again from the third day, are found, guess where? In the law and the prophets. They are there as witnesses to verify, yes, this is what the Messiah has come to do. Remember when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, and he's speaking to a couple of his disciples, he says this, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, including Elijah, he interpreted to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. So Jesus is saying to the group, I must suffer, I must die, I must rise again. And then Moses and Elijah are there at the top of the mountain to verify this. Yes, that's what the Old Testament said. In fact, in Luke's account, Luke chapter 9, you might want to look there, he gives us a clue as to what they are speaking about with Jesus there on the top of the mountain. They are speaking, in verse 31, about his death that was to be accomplished in Jerusalem. They know Jesus has come to die, and they are talking to Jesus about what the Old Testament scripture, the law and the prophets, said about his death, burial, and resurrection. They are authenticating to Peter, James, and John that what Jesus said to you at the bottom of the mountain about his death, burial, and resurrection is true because Old Testament scripture confirms it. It prophesied it. Matthew continues on in Matthew 17. He says, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So Jesus was speaking of his humiliation. When he came to earth, when he emptied himself of his glory, came to earth, became a man, submitted himself to death on the cross. That's what Jesus is, and the, Moses and Elijah are speaking about. But as he is speaking, as his, he is transformed, he is transfigured. 
They heard about his suffering, but now they see his glory. And Luke tells us that, guess what? They became fully awake. You would think so. I would hope so. You see the glory of Jesus Christ. Maybe you were just sort of listening to the conversation as you doze off into sleep, but all of a sudden they see a glorified, glorified Christ in their presence. He reveals his glory to them. Now John, one of the witnesses up there on the side of the mountain, says this in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh, that's Jesus in his humiliation, in his humanity, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John, as he writes the Gospel, John testifies to the fact, yes, we saw the glory of Christ. Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, says this, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly divide myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. When were they eyewitnesses of his majesty? For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Peter says, We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So both John in his accounting and the Gospel of John and Peter in his epistles testify to the fact that they saw the glory of Christ. God gave Christ on the side of the mountain honor and glory. Now we don't have a written record of James in his accounting of the Mount of Transfiguration. You know why? He died. He died early on in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 12. He was killed by Herod in Jerusalem. The church was suffering persecution. Herod is killed. Peter is captured, and that's the whole story about Rhoda. Remember, he's in prison, and they pray, and angels come and take uh, Peter out of prison. Jesus gives Peter, James, and John a glimpse of his deity. They have seen him as man, but now they get to see him as deity. They get to see his glory. Now, what has he been talking about with them? He's been talking about his suffering. I'm going to die. But then he reveals to him his glory. And this is an important principle. I think one of the major points of this passage is that suffering always comes before glory in the life of Christ, but also the life of his children. Suffering always comes before glory. The cross always comes before the crown. What's, up, what's in the window behind me? A cross and a crown. But you can't have the crown until the suffering. This will, this vision of the resurrected, not the resurrected, the glorified Christ will help Peter, James, and even John late into his years as he suffers for the sake of Christ. Jesus has already taught him about his glory. Look at verse 27 of chapter 16 of Matthew. This is what he says there. For the Son of Man is coming with his angels 
in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So he's taught them about his glory, but now he illustrates his glory. This isn't the time that he returns to earth in his angels. There are no angels up there at the top of the mountain. This isn't Jesus' final return. This is Jesus with two witnesses, not with angels. And what does his glory look like? Well, Matthew tells us. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as light. And we've been studying the book of Revelation, and Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, John, the same John that was up there at the top of the mountain, sees the resurrected, glorified Christ in, in Revelation, and it says this, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So they see the glory of Christ there on the top of the mountain. Now, Peter seems to interrupt this conversation between Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And it appears it happens near the end of their conversation about his death in Jerusalem. Luke tells us that as they were leaving, Peter says something. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Luke says that Peter didn't even know what he was saying when he said those things. Mark says that he didn't know what to say. These, three, these two men were leaving. I don't know how they were leaving. I don't know if they're, you see these Star Wars type of thing, you know, they're transported, they're little particles. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they were going up into heaven like Jesus did. I don't know. But they noticed that they were leaving, and Peter interrupts the process of leaving and says, maybe it would be good for me to build three tabernacles or three tents. Uh, Peter was just being Peter. Uh, seeing the glorified Christ was terrifyingly wonderful for Peter, and he did not want it to end. He didn't want Moses and Elijah to go. He didn't want Jesus to go. He says, why don't we just set up camp here and we'll just enjoy your glory. We don't have to go back down to the mountain, down to the bottom of the mountain. Jesus, you don't have to suffer. You don't have to die. Isn't that what Peter had said to him earlier? No way. Maybe this is Peter's out. I told you, maybe we just stay up here the rest of our lives. But guess what? God the Father interrupts Peter. Peter interrupted Jesus and the two witnesses, but God now interrupts Peter. God descends on the mountain in a bright crowd, and the cloud overshadows the whole group, just like Sinai, hundreds of years earlier. God consumed the mountain, and God's glory descends on the mountain. Christ in his glory was on the top of the mountain. Now God in his glory descends upon the mountain in a bright light. And a voice out of the cloud Bearing him glory and honor, as we read in 2 Peter chapter 1, says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So Peter, I mean, Elijah and Moses has accomplished their purposes. They've borne witness to the testimony of Jesus Christ that he must suffer and die. They are no longer needed to bear that witness, and they leave. 
But God says to Peter, James, and John, who remain, listen to my son. These are the same words that God the Father said when Jesus rose out of the waters in baptism. Remember, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And God is saying it again in the presence of Peter, James, and John. Listen to him. Now, I can't imagine what the voice of God would sound like coming out of the mountain or coming out of a cloud. We don't know. But I would imagine it's a booming voice. John, in the Revelation, says it, was, it sounds like a trumpet, a loud blaring trumpet. It sounds like many rushing waters. So it wasn't some weak, timid voice. It was bellowing. It was roaring. And God says this about his son in the presence of those three disciples. And for the first time in the book of Matthew, Matthew tells us what the disciples' reaction was to hearing the voice of God coming out of a bright cloud on the mountain. As Jesus' face shone and his clothes were white, what's their reaction? They're terrified. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. That was John's reaction. When he saw the resurrected, glorified Christ in Revelation, he fell on his face as though he were dead. Peter, James, and John were completely, completely overwhelmed by the presence and the glory of God the Father and the glory of God the Son there on the, side of the, on the top of the mountain. In, in John, when he falls flat on his face as though we're dead, when he sees the resurrected, glorified Christ, Christ comes over to him in John chapter 1, and he puts his hand on him, and he says, Fear not, John. I am the first and the last. And what does Jesus do here on the side of the mountain after the Father speaks and the disciples fall flat on their face, terrified? What does Jesus do here? The same thing, doesn't he? He came and he touched them, all three of them. And he says, rise and have no fear. A gentle shepherd he is. A compassionate savior. A tender king. A loving Messiah. Just like Jesus has touched countless other men and women in the book of Matthew, he comes and touches his disciples lovingly and reassures them not to be afraid. Afraid of what? Well, first of all, of God. He says, he's not going to consume you yet. You're not going to die yet. You're not going to suffer yet. But I also think he's anticipating their life of suffering in the future. He has already said that in so many words. I'm going to suffer. That means you as my follower are going to suffer as well. So he's saying to them in anticipation of their future suffering, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of where I'm going to lead you. I have said you must follow me. You follow me up to the top of the mountain. You're going to follow me down on the bottom. But you don't need to fear ever again. I am with you. And doesn't he say that to them before he leaves once and for all? Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. And so they are being reassured by the glorified Christ that fear no longer needs to be a part of their walk as they follow him faithfully. 
And then Matthew tells us they lifted up their eyes. I imagine how it looked, you know. I don't think they just sort of popped up their heads. They probably sort of, you know, how that goes. You know, you're sort of lifting up your eyes. And when they lift up their eyes, they see no one but Jesus only. The bright cloud was gone. Elijah was gone. Moses was gone. But Jesus stayed. He did not abandon them. And he promised he never would. Now, when you first read that account, they lifted up their eyes and they saw no one but Jesus. Does that sound bad? To, does that sound, does that sort of sound like a negative thing? Like everybody else was gone and only Jesus stayed. Does that sound sort of negative to you? When I first time I read it, I thought, you know, I, that sounds sort of bad, you know. And you think about it, you meditate it, that's not bad at all. That's great news. God, in the form of Jesus Christ, is staying with them. Jesus is going to be all they need. From this point forward, they need not see anything else. They have seen the living word in his glorified body. But now they have the written word. From now on, they're going to be testimonies of the written word, the written word of God. Peter, as he relays this to his readers in 2 Peter, continuing on where he says that they had the testimony of God the Father regarding his son. Verse 19, it says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone else's interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit of God. More certain in Peter's mind was more certain than the experience that he, he, he felt, or he, the experience that he experienced, I know that's repeating myself, the experience that he had on the top of the mountain is the fact that he has the living word of God written. The word of God that we have in our hearts, the written word of God, is more sure than any experience that you might think you need. You don't. You have the word of God. You have everything you need. Peter says we have everything we need for a life of godliness. Peter says that the word of God remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Well, Matthew continues his account in Matthew chapter 17. If you're not there, turn there. Matthew 17, verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Don't tell anybody about seeing my glory here on the top of the mountain until I complete my suffering, until I die, until I'm raised, risen from the dead. He doesn't give them a reason. It's a matter of obedience. He doesn't explain. We really shouldn't speculate. But I'm going to. <laughs> Why do you think Jesus tells them not to tell anybody about his glory until his suffering is complete? I think one of the reasons, possibly, is that he doesn't want his disciples to get enamored with the fact 
that I won't have to suffer. Jesus has already come in his glory. I don't have a life of suffering laying ahead of me. I can have the crown before I, what, wear the cross. I won't have to take up my cross daily because Jesus has already come in his glory. And Jesus says, nah, I'm not going to come in my full glory until I die on the cross. They don't question his order, not to tell anybody, but they do have a question for Jesus. What is the question? They want to know how soon he's going to come in his glory. They want to know, is you, are you going to set up your kingdom now? In fact, after Jesus died, after he raised from the dead, as he's out on the mountain of Olives, certainly before he's taken up into heaven, this is the final question on the disciples' mouth. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the season that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of his sight, out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And what do they say? The same Jesus that you see going up into heaven, he's going to come back in his glory. You'll meet him in the sky. But the disciples, as they come down the mountain, they want to know now, when is, are you going to set up your kingdom now? They say, they ask the question this way. Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? The scribes, they were the experts in the law. They knew the Old Testament back and forth. They knew how to interpret. They knew what it meant. And they said, they had explained to the people, that before the Christ, the Messiah, comes in his glory to set up his kingdom, Elijah must come. So they're thinking, well, who did we just see up there on the top of the mountain? And we don't know how they recognized Elijah and Moses up there, but they did. Maybe they had name tags, I don't know. But they saw Elijah and Moses and they recognized it. So we just saw Elijah up there. Does that mean, according to the scribes, that you're going to set up your glory now? Are we going to see more of what we saw on the mountain? Are all the disciples going to see what you, you just did for us up there? Is your glory going to be revealed now? Verse 11, Jesus answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. Meaning that Elijah will come again. The actual Elijah, the prophet of God, who sacrificed on Mount Carmel, the one who was taken up into heaven by a whirlwind with flaming chariots and horses, that actual Elijah, the one that you saw up in the mountain, he's going to come again. He will come again to restore or to put in a process the restoration of all things. Now, you just saw him as my witness, the witness to my testimony and to my death, the witness to my death, my suffering, and my resurrection. But he's going to come again, not as a witness, but to restore or begin the restoration of all things. And when does that happen? Well, I believe it's going to happen in Revelation chapter 11, where during the end days, two witnesses will come. 
I believe probably Elijah and Moses, and they're beginning to set into motion the revival of the king once and for all. But then Jesus says in chapter 17, verse 12, but I tell you that Elijah already comes. So he says Elijah will come, and now he says Elijah has already come. He's, is he coming or has he come? Well, he's, he re-answers, he, re he says, And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. The Elijah that will come in Revelation, the physical Elijah that was taken up in the clouds by a whirlwind with, with chariots of fire and horses, he will come. But there is one who comes in the spirit of Elijah, and Matthew has already referred to this in Matthew chapter 3 when John the Baptist is presented. Remember when Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, he got a vision in the temple that he, from an angel and said that his son would be a prophet? Let me read it to you. Luke chapter 1. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom and the just, to make ready for the people, for the Lord, a people prepared. So he says, Elijah is still going to come in the future, but he has come in the spirit and the power of Elijah through the person of John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 3, 1 to 5, Matthew presents John the Baptist as the Elijah. The actual Elijah will come to prepare the way of the Lord in his exaltation. The spirit of the Elijah, John the Baptist, will prepare the way of the Lord in his humiliation, in his manhood. The disciples knew exactly what Jesus was saying. They got it. One of the few times in Scripture where the disciples got it. They knew that Jesus was referring to John the Baptist, not the Elijah that they saw at the top of the mountain with Moses. That Elijah is still to come. Verse 13, then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. The disciples knew what Jesus was referring to, or knew whom Jesus was referring to, John the Baptist. So we, as a church, we can still look forward to the actual Elijah returning to earth as witnesses preparing the way, or preparing earth for the arrival of its king, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So what are some implications for our life today based upon this text? Well, Jesus clearly says to them not to speak of his glory until his death. Is that command good for us today? Are we, not, are we commanded not to speak of Jesus Christ to a world? Just the opposite. Jesus has died. He has risen again. We can speak freely of this 
text and every other text in scripture, we have no fear, no shame in proclaiming that Jesus will come in all his glory to set up his forever kingdom. That should be part of our praise. That should be a part of our witness. They wanted to know when. Jesus says it's not for you to know. But it can come at any point, we believe. Scripture teaches us that Christ's return is imminent. That means it could happen at any moment. It just didn't happen yet. It could happen next second. No, it didn't happen there either. But I could keep on doing it. It could happen any moment. And we should be prepared. John says that we should be prepared. We should purify ourselves because the Messiah is coming at any moment. What else can we take away from this passage? Christ's presence in our lives is continual. We need not fear the future because what? Christ is in control of the future. Just like he reached down and touched those disciples and said, do not be afraid, we can be assured of his presence in our life. Whatever life is throwing your way, do not fear for God is bigger than your fears. That's what faith is. Faith is trusting God is bigger than your feelings and your fear. God is in control. We can trust him. We can trust his word. We can trust it as reliable. We can trust it's true. He's greater than our greatest fears and greatest doubts. And I think the biggest lesson that we can take from this passage is that suffering in this world is a part of what God has called us to do. We will suffer until Christ returns. We will suffer. We will pick up our cross, die to ourselves daily, but one day we will be guaranteed a crown of life. Peter says to his readers in 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, and he's speaking to a church that is suffering, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Suffering, and I believe many of you are suffering right now. Suffering serves the purposes of God. It prepares you one day for the cross, that you, the, the crown that you will wear forever and ever and ever. Remember Paul's word to the Philippian church? He's in prison and he says in Philippians chapter 2, and he's describing the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is how we should think, because this is how our Savior thought. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is his humiliation. He became a man. Verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. That's how Jesus' life here on earth ended. Death on a cross. But God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there on the top of the mountain, Jesus reveals what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Yes, I came. I'm speaking to Elijah and Moses here about my death. But then God in his grace has given you a picture of what it's going to be like in the final day. And it's going to be true of me, but it's also going to be true of you. You will get through this place we call earth. Suffering will come. But you can be assured that just as the Father was glorified in heaven, you too will receive resurrected, glorified God bodies and worship with him forever in heaven and heaven. That should keep us going for a little bit. Should keep us going until he comes. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this visual lesson of the realities of the humiliation and exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the examples of Peter, James, and John, Lord, who all suffered in this world until taken into glory. Lord, encourage us this morning that our suffering is a part of your plan for our lives, preparing for us something that far outweighs any suffering that we might go through on this earth. It won't even compare with what we went through here. It will be wonderful, glorious. And we look forward to that day. Keep us faithful until that day. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Will you stand and sing our closing hymn of praise?